You're listening to a podcast from Columbia Christian Fellowship in Columbia, Pennsylvania. Our services are weekly at 10 a.m. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to our weekly message. To connect with us, visit our website at blesscolumbia.org. Find your seats. Do not have use of the iPad today. We're making use of a laptop. So that means I may have to put my glasses on to be able to read it and then take them off to be able to see you. (laughs) So good morning. That's been said today. Brief review. Acts 21, 1 through 16, last week, the title was, On to Jerusalem. Paul had been wanting to get to Jerusalem for quite a while. Yet everywhere he went, and you know this, he was warned by the spirit of great difficulty awaiting him there. And he had to deal with the pressure, hear this, of well-intentioned believers Attempting to dissuade him from going. Attempting to dissuade him from being obedient to the Holy Spirit. You say, that would never happen. Uh Uh-huh. I see the looks on your faces. Well-intentioned loved ones. Well-intentioned church members. Trying to talk us out of what we fully believe is the will of God. For an ungodly reason. Paul had that pressure. He had the Holy Spirit directing him to to Jerusalem, and he knew it. He had the Holy Spirit warning him every step of the way. There's trouble waiting. It would have been so easy for him to bail. And then he has well-intentioned believers trying to talk him out of it. That's pressure. And we took our our application last week, though, from the example of the, the Apostle Paul, from his attitude as he faced these realities. It's how we should face those realities when there's pressure for being, when there's difficulty for being a Christian, and we all face that. When there's pressure from others not to do what's right, we all face that. And what was Paul's attitude? Paul said, why all this weeping? You're breaking my heart. But I'm ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Paul's response, I'm ready not only to be jailed, but to die if I have to in serving the Lord. Typical Paul, right? So we ended with this question for ourselves. And it's a good question. It's a fair question. I hope you've given it some thought. 
And this is the question. Is his will for my life my highest objective in life? Or in other words, what are you living for, Christian? If you're not living for that, for his will for your life, what are you living for? Why do you want to be a Christian if you're not living for him? Fool out for him. Not just professing to be a Christian, but living fool out for the Lord. It's going to take that level of commitment right there on the part of God's people, believers, the church, you and me, if we have any hope of seeing this mighty move that God has prophesied to us, 100,000 precious lost souls coming to Christ through us. High level of commitment necessary. Moving on to today, it's Acts 21, 17 through 20. Just a couple of verses. My reader is not here. Rather than calling someone and asking them, I thought, who here today would be willing to step to the mic and read Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 20? Let's stand. Maria, come and read. We'll stand and we'll honor God's word together. Speak right into the mic. All it's right. Acts 21, 17 through 20. When we arrived, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem welcomed us warmly. The next day, Paul went with us to meet with James, and all the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. After greeting them, Paul gave a detailed account of the things God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. After hearing this, they praised God, and then they said, You know, dear brother, how many thousands of Jews have also believed and they all follow the law of Moses very seriously. Thank you. Thank you for filling in. You may be seated. So today's title is A Warm Welcome. As many of these passages have been that we've looked at, this passage, passage again, it's mostly narrative. It's mostly information. It's mostly facts. It's most, mostly a telling of events. What's going on? What's happening? So as we often do, we will exegete the passage. It simply means we're going to look at the verses and make some comments on them, give the interpretation, make some comments. But then we want to make application. And as so often has been happening these days, the strength of this message today is in the application. And the application depends on you. You'll see. We're going to break down the passage. The title's a warm welcome. And I have some good, inf some, some good news no challenges this morning. God has been challenging us heavily, intensely over the last few weeks and months. Today, no challenge, mostly celebration, mostly praise. Right? Could you use some of that? Some celebration and some praise. So 2117, when we arrived, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem welcomed us warmly, a warm welcome. Point of interest to begin, notice the we, when we arrived. You now know what that means, correct? Luke is still in the narrative. The author of the story is in the story. Luke is with them. 
He's giving an eyewitness account of what's happening. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is experiencing what he's writing. He's writing in the first person. We, us. No longer they, them. So when Paul, Luke, his companions finally arrived in Jerusalem, they were warmly welcomed. At least initially. At least for this week's message. There may be one of those infamous book of Acts buts. B-U-T-S. Not B-U-T-T-S. There may be one of those infamous book of Acts buts coming next week. But for now, they're welcomed warmly. For now, they're enjoying a time of rich camaraderie with the brothers and sisters of the church in Jerusalem. Or at least a segment of the church in Jerusalem. The Acts forecast for next week, gloomy. Even as he enjoys a warm welcome and a time of sweet camaraderie, now, storm clouds are gathering for Paul. Didn't the Holy Spirit warn him of that? Should he have expected any differently? He probably did not. But for now, there's some R&R for Paul and his companions. But there's storm clouds gathering. That's why I keep putting in these caveats. A warm welcome, at least initially, but not for long. With the brothers and sisters of the church in Jerusalem. At least some of the brothers and sisters of the church. Not the whole church. That's for next week. Let's not spoil the moment. Right now, it's good. And what comes next is good. And in a moment, we'll have our application. So Acts 21, 18. The next day, Paul went with us. There's the, present, the, pers- the uh, first person writing. Went with us to meet with James, to meet with all the elders of the Jerusalem church. The elders were present there. Some explanation. James. But wait, you, you thought he was dead. Wasn't James executed? Wasn't James martyred back in Acts chapter 12? So who is this James now? It's not the apostle. It's the, brother of, it's the brother of John. This is the half-brother of Jesus. This is one of the sons of Mary and Joseph after the virgin birth of Jesus. This James that they went to meet with is the author of the book of James in the New Testament. Let's make sure we know who we're talking about. James, the brother of John, did not resurrect and now lead the church in Jerusalem. This is a different James. Just a quick note on the James who was martyred. He was martyred back in Acts chapter 12. He was killed by the sword, which usually means beheaded in Scripture. So that James is already with the Lord. I just want us to focus on that for one quick moment. That James is already with the Lord. So he now is watching all of this. And he's cheering all of them on as part of that crowd in Hebrews 12. Uh, do you know to that which I'm referring? Hebrews 12.1. Since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Because of the context of this verse... 
the huge crowd of witnesses is commonly believed to refer to those Old and New Testament saints who have already died. They've already gone on. They've died in the faith, and they're now with the Lord. You know your body doesn't, your soul doesn't stay in the grave, right? Now you'd be surprised the number of people who don't know that. To me, it's an extremely scary thought not to know that. To think that you may be encased in a coffin under the ground. When you die, your soul departs this body. That's what death is. It's the separation of the soul from the body. And those who die in Christ, when that separation occurs, they're immediately with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. we got to clear up some of these erroneous teachings out there that our souls are, are waiting somewhere in a grave or even in some kind of holding tank. No, to be present, to, do, to be absent from your body is to be present with the Lord immediately. There's still that horrible or that devastating, not horrible, devastating human grief. But what a comfort to know. Our loved ones are not in the grave, and they're not off in some holding tank somewhere. They're in this huge crowd of witnesses with the Lord. They're, they're celebrating with many others of like precious faith who've died and gone on before them. And I don't know if they can be involved in what's going on on earth, but they're certainly watching it. They're watching us. They're cheering on the church. They're cheering on believers. Go for it. It's worth it. I can tell you. If I could tell you, I will tell you. It's worth it. You want to be here. That's why Paul said to live is Christ. But man, to die is gain. It's even better. It's better to be in that crowd of witnesses. That's kind of foreign to our earthly thinking. We just can't quite grasp that, but it's truth from Scripture. So James... John's brother, James, the brother of John, he's in heaven. He's in this crowd of witnesses, and he's cheering John on because John is still laboring on earth for Christ. So he's cheering him on. I like to think of it as a football game. Right now, we're on the field. We're playing. But the stands are filled with people who went before us, and they're cheering us on. And when you leave here, you just go up into the stands. (laughs) Also here, it connects it to throwing off the sin that so easily besets us. Knowing that they're watching us, knowing that they're cheering us on, they're rooting for us, they're not condemning us, but it should be incentive to live holy lives and to live for the Lord because you've got all these people that are cheering you on. And some of them are actually depending on you. Because they were given ministry assignments that haven't been quite completed, and you may be called to complete their their assignment. And so they're really cheering you on. Yes, you know, I started that, and now you can finish that. There was a a retired pastor at the E-Town Church, Pastor McGarvey, and in his later years, he became totally obsessed in a good way with revival. And he was going around churches starting prayer meetings for revival. He started a college of prayer for revival. And he passed on. And revival has not yet fully hit. And as I was thinking about this, Dutch Sheets calls it the synergy of the ages. You build upon somebody else's ministry. I have become obsessed with revival. And I believe that God is calling me to carry on Pastor McGarvey's mantle and push for revival. 100,000 souls coming to know the Lord. There's no other reason to live. God has given us the vision. He wants to bring revival. Pastor McGarvey's in that crowd. 
And he's cheering me on. Yeah, go for it, hub. Don't give up. Don't give in. <laughs> what do you think? Whose mantle are you carrying on? Many of you had godly moms and dads and grandfathers and grandmothers who were praying for things that they haven't yet seen. Maybe you're to pick up that mantle and carry that on. But anyhow, James, the brother of John, is in that crowd and he's cheering his brother and the rest of them on in their work for the Lord. The next day, Paul went with us to meet with James and all the elders of the Jerusalem church were there. It's the same verse. I want to emphasize this time all the elders. It refers to the leaders of the Jerusalem church at that time. Scholars figure that it's safe to say there were probably 70 elders in that church. 70 elders and leaders gathered to meet with Paul and his companions. And they came to meet with Paul. They came to greet Paul because he was fresh back from these missionary journeys. They wanted to hear all about God's exploits through them out on the mission field. Not too much different than what we do when missionaries come home on furlough. We bring them in and we're like, what's God doing overseas? What's God doing in your country? And they talk to us. He's warmly welcomed. We're still in the warmly the warm welcome period of his visit to Jerusalem. He's warmly welcomed by James and the leadership and all the elders. And in this gathering, they were expectantly waiting for Paul to begin sharing all God had accomplished through him. At this meeting, at this gathering of the leaders in Jerusalem, Paul and his companions, Luke's in there, Paul gave a very detailed account of the things God had accomplished among the Gentiles through him, through his ministry, through he and his companions. The detailed account. Other versions I like, they have, he rehearsed one by one the things that God did through his ministry, point by point, not leaving anything out. Each one of the things God did. Not that he gave the details of everything he experienced, but everything that he experienced, he listed. In other words, the thought is this. It must have been an exciting time of testimonies, albeit an extended one. We've been following Paul and his companions for about nine chapters. We know a lot of what God did through them. Can you imagine hearing it firsthand, though? Can you, can you imagine hearing about the imprisonment, subsequent earthquake, salvation of the jailer and, and all his household in Philippi? Or what went on in Thessalonica? Or the Berean Christians who, as soon as they heard Paul, they went home and researched it to make sure. In Athens, the unknown God. In Corinth. Just, and Troas. Just to mention a few of the more prominent ones. Healings. Deliverances, miracles, signs, wonders, raising of the dead, salvations. Can you imagine the length of time it must have taken for Paul and the boys to recount to the leaders of Jerusalem all that God had done? Especially if they asked questions. But Acts 21.19 says, 
Paul and his companions shared everything with them. All that God had done, all that he had accomplished through them. Their response will lead to our application. So after hearing this, or as they heard this, as they heard these testimonies of what God had done, they praised God. Many versions, if you're looking in your Bible, you might see it says they glorified God. Or they gave God glory. They praised God. They glorified God. They gave God glory. The leaders in the Jerusalem church began to praise and glorify God because of the testimonies of Paul and his companions. What does glorify God, what does really to praise God even mean? Let's try and make that real because they're Christian words we use all the time. Praise God. Glorify God. Let God get the glory. Here's what it means. It's simple. It means they recognized God as the one who did these things. That's giving God glory. They acknowledged God as the one who did these things. They honored God as the one who did these things. They acclaimed God. The acclamation went to God as the one who did these things. Although it was through the Apostle Paul and it was through his companions, although it was through men, men took no credit. That's what it means to glorify God. Man took no credit for what happened. Yeah, we don't get all Eeyore about it and say, oh, I guess I'm nothing. No, God uses us greatly. But we have to realize it's God using us greatly. It's not us on our own. Try and do it without God and see how far you get. Many of us have been. And look how far we've gotten. So glorifying God simply means that, yeah, he used me. Wow, I did this, but it was all him. Not, oh, it was all him. I didn't have anything to do with it. Yes, you did. He couldn't have done it without you. He chose to do it through you, but it's all him. Here's the principle. Testimonies of what God has done, testimonies of what God has done, bring God great glory. Genuine testimonies. Listen, I'm talking about genuine testimonies that credit God for what he's done. That bring him recognition, that bring him acknowledgement, that bring him honor, and that bring him all the acclaim. So from this, we will take up our application, and we're going to finish this passage in Acts 21 next week. Here's the application. In a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to give testimonies of what we have experienced God doing God doing in our lives, through us into another's life, in the nation, in the community, through answered prayer. We're the prayers. God's, God moves on those prayers. And I want to give you a caution as we move into testimony. So I want you to listen to this. Better if I could see and you're not just a blur out there. I want you to listen to this. Testimonies are not a time to glorify self. It's not a time to glorify flesh. It's not an I time, except in how God has used you. 
Be sure that your testimony credits God, what he has done, what he has accomplished, even though you are the agent. I'm going to call the band forward, and we're going to play a song. And I, I, I really encourage us to listen to the words of the song because they lead into a testimony time. As we worship, be thinking about the words to the song and also be thinking about what you might want to share. And if you decide that you do want to share, while the band's playing, just make your way up one of these side aisles, stand over there behind the pillar. It's okay if we have a line. That will diminish downtime as we wait for people to come up. When the music finishes, just step to the mic, this side or that side, and say what you need to say. Say what you need to say, but be as concise and to the point as possible. I just want to give you a, a little hint from many years doing this kind of stuff. When you're giving a testimony, if you begin to ramble, and you add in all the minute details, you lose your audience. And when you lose your audience, the testimony loses its power. You want to come up, say whatever you need to say. I'm not asking you to scrimp on it, but say it concisely and to the point, and then go back to your seat. If you have more than one testimony, that's fine, but go to the end of the line. One testimony, poor person, at a time. Understand that? Yeah. All right, we're going to play a song. And as we play, you think about what you might want to say, and then just line up. When the song's done, you move to the mic. Band, if you have a testimony, just step down from the platform, go to a mic, and then come back up.